from 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. Welcome to the Art of the Matter, made possible by the ongoing support of listeners like you. Hello and welcome to The Art of the Matter. I'm Sharon Gamble. The music for today's show is courtesy of the Buscelli Waller Rap Jazz Orchestra from their Heart and Soul album, available through Owl Studios at owlstudios.com. And I'm Travis DiNicola. Today I'll chat with Hannah Lindgren about her new documentary, Food First. Mm. I'll talk with the new Deputy Director for Horticulture and Natural Resources for the IMA, Jonathan Wright. And I'll find out about Keeping Hinkle Hinkle, a storytelling event at Hinkle Fieldhouse. <laughs> surprise. Plus, yeah, surprise. <laughs> It'll be that arts calendar we call, What Do We, we do? do? All that and more right after the latest news from NPR. A few years ago, the phrase farm-to-table was just being used by a few hardcore foodies. Today, it seems to be everywhere. The new feature documentary, Food First, looks at how the nationwide food movement is impacting Indianapolis. Travis DiNicola spoke with filmmaker Hannah Myers Lindgren about the movie. Hannah, welcome to Art of the Matter. Great to have you here. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So am I. I'm really impressed by what I've seen of this film so far. Um, And we're going to talk about the film in in just a minute and sort of how it came to be. But um, I first uh, became aware of your work a couple years ago when uh, I saw a documentary you had created about uh, fans of John Green, the Nerd Fighters. And that was a great piece. Um, Thank you. But uh, the quality of this new one, Food First, is just outstanding. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, definitely on a different... uh, a different caliber. Um, I produced the the Nerd Fighters documentary when I was in school, mm-hmm. and about seventy five percent of that content was crowdsourced from the community. So, yeah. depending on whatever the community had access to in terms of camera and audio, that's what we got. Right, it was kind uh, of a mix. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, this this one's a little bit different in that it's the first uh, film that I've produced with my production company. So um, it's a lot more consistent in terms of style and uh, and quality overall. So which came first here, the working on the film or the production company that you've started? The production company. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, that pretty much right out of school in, in 2013, in June of 2013. And um, from there, I mostly did client work. We still mostly do client work. And it's deliberate media. Yeah, mm-hmm. deliberate media. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a while, it was just me. Um, but fortunately, last year, I was able to hire someone full time. So now mm-hmm. we're kind of a duo. <laughs> cool. Um, but yeah, we started that in 2013. And then we started producing this film in spring of 2014. So it was it was they're almost about the same age, but the, the production company is a little bit older. So why is it that you wanted to produce this film? I mean, you, you have a very personal connection to food. Yes, I, I mean, do. I guess we all do. But. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we all, we all, that's the whole point of the film mm-hmm. is that food is very important to all of us. Um, but yeah, I, um, I've had a evolving relationship with food. Um, when I was a freshman in college, I got very, very ill um, to the point where it was hard for me to get out of bed and, and go to class mm. because I wasn't able to consume the nutrients that I needed and I was just so weak and tired and um, and it just was losing weight very rapidly. So, you know, 
you know, had a series of doctor's appointments. Most people tests. get the freshman 10 or 15 I know. or whatever, right? <laughs> well, I got but, that, and then I quickly <laughs> lost it as I got sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so we, we figured out that it was all related to my digestive system um, and that I had several different food intolerances, and it had created um, leaky gut in my digestive system. So from there, it was just a process of healing and recovery. Um, I had to have a couple other things done, like my mm-hmm. gallbladder removed. And slowly over the years, um, you know, I, I originally saw it as a thing to just be angry about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was very bitter. Um, and Frustrated, I'm sure. Very frustrated. Yeah. I got overwhelmed very easily, like if I had to go out to eat or um, I didn't really enjoy cooking at that time. So uh, much to my mother's dismay. Uh, so I, you know, wouldn't. I wouldn't know really what to do, and I felt overwhelmed. But then when I got out of school and I was living on my own, I realized that it was entirely my own power of what I put into my mouth and what I put into my body. I was responsible. No longer relying on dorm food. No, not relying on dorm food. Yeah, or mom. Um, And so then I started going to farmer's markets and learning more about fresh food and how to cook it. And it's been a process. I mean, it's not easy to to learn how to you know cook your own food and what your body needs and everything but it's been just wonderful and 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 educating and that's my journey has just grown exponentially since i started this film so how did that turn into the film i mean at what point did you say wait a second i'm not just learning about food for myself but i want to make a documentary about this yeah, so at first I, I thought about um, making it like a personal documentary about mm-hmm. my own story, about my own sort of coming to terms with food. Um, but then I realized that the food story in itself of what's going on here in Indy is much more powerful than, than my own. And it's it expands much beyond health and everything. It's it's on social services and, um, and economy and that sort of thing. And so once I got introduced to um, one person, it just led to the next, to the next, to the next. And then I realized how multifaceted the community really was. You really feature some interesting people in the in the film. Uh, a number of people who I know, and I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will recognize uh, Dr. Lisa Harris from Eskenazi, um, Laura and uh, Tyler Henderson from Growing Places Indie, R.J. Wall, the founder of Chef's Night Off Indie, uh, uh, Ted Grain uh, from Lisk. A lot of really interesting people that are included in this, as well as other people involved with things like Green Bean Delivery and different chefs, of course. Um, uh, how'd you go about uh, getting all these people involved? Yeah, well, so uh, my journey kind of started with a chance meeting with Chef Wendell Fowler, who um, is a personality on uh, Wish TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he introduced me to Audrey Barron, who at that time was just starting construction on Ezra's Enlightened Cafe, the first raw vegan cafe in Indy. So um, from Audrey, I just sort of started following her. And then she led me to, you know, growers and agriculture. And she led me to other restaurant owners. And it really just rippled out from yeah. there. Um, and what's cool is all of these people, yes, you'd think, oh, they all have food in common. That's very true. But they are very different things. You know, they all tackle very different things related to food. But when in the film, you'll see that even though they're all different topics and they were interviewed about whatever topic that they specialized in, mm-hmm. they really create one cohesive voice that represents what the food movement is all about. For example, I mentioned Dr. Lisa Harris and Eskenazi. Of course, they have uh, the rooftop garden there mm-hmm. uh, where they actually uh, grow food. The and farm, uh, that's yep. the connection back to food, of course, and, and obviously food and health. Yeah, exactly. That's definitely um, one facet of it. But then what's also great is each person, place, individual business that we featured tended to have 
kind of like one foot here, one foot there. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, you'd think, oh, yeah, you know, Eskenazi, the hospital, the Sky Farm, they're all, all about wellness and health and stuff. And they are. But also they specifically have their clinics, you know, in neighborhoods mm -hmm. with, where people are underserved and they're in food deserts and they're in places where people don't have access. And they they serve people even if they can't afford to you know, have medical care. They still do that. And so that brings in the social services aspect, which then, you know, brings in LISC and brings in what they're doing to try and, and growing places indie, you know, and education. And it just really, it's a giant web. <laughs> it's all interconnected. Yeah, yeah. LISC, the uh, local uh, initiative support group, I mean, I, I sort of think of them more as, you know, neighborhood development. And mm -hmm. so at first I'm like, oh, what's Ted doing in this food documentary, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Ted is actually throughout the entire film. I don't think he expected that. <laughs> um, but he just managed to really... Um, cement all the pieces together mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and really show how it all is interconnected. And, and I really like in the film, he describes it as um, there's all these different pillars of the food movement, right? There's, you know, the people who care about sustainability, there's the people who care about wellness, there's the people who care about restaurants and then access and education. Well, the thing that is really creating a huge movement in Indianapolis right now is that all of the pillars are starting to talk to each other mm -hmm. and realizing that with each other, <clears throat> they are stronger and they, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. If everyone is working together and, and working cohesively, it's just going to get better and better for everyone. So what did you learn during the course of making this documentary? <laughs> so much. Mm -hmm. um, on a personal level, I just learned a lot more about, um, you know, feeding my body with the things that it needs. And it's made me, you know, feel much better than I have in the six years since I've gotten sick. So that has been a wonderful uh, personal addition to my life. But um, on another level, I just, you know, I fell even more in love with Indianapolis. This is a fantastic place. And the more that you learn about what's going on with this community and this movement, the more amazing it is. And you just you start to be like, wow, Indianapolis is really doing some fantastic things. Mm. I showed this to a friend who's, um, you know, she's <coughs> from the South. She's from Birmingham and stuff. And she said, I didn't realize Indianapolis was so progressive. And I was like, yeah, no one does. <laughs> that's the point. And, and that's what we want to do with this film is tell everyone what's happening here, because it's really cool. It is very cool. So, I mean, that's obviously one thing you want people to get out of this and you know, just to, like, recognize that there's some really cool things going on in the food movement here. What else do you hope people get out of this, being able to see this documentary? I hope they get out of it whatever they need. So, you know, obviously... I, it would be really great if people saw the film and said, I really want to get engaged in the food community in in this way, whether that's volunteering with Growing Places Indie or whether that's deciding that the one night a week they go out to eat, they're going to only eat local or, you know, deciding, oh, I'm going to try and get as much of my food from the farmer's market as possible. You know, it, it's it's a small, tiny thing that you can do to change, you know, or it's, it's a big thing. You can decide mm -hmm. that that's, you know that you want to focus more on this. Um, our intern right now, she watched the film and she's like, this is incredible. Like, I didn't realize it and I just feel very passionate right now. Like, I need to get involved in this. And that's what it's all about is the more people we can have talking about it, the better. So let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of, of how the film got made. Um, uh, because it was really through a Kickstarter campaign, right? 
Sort of, yeah. You're so, part of that? yeah, yeah okay. we, um, in order to get kind of the initial funding, because my business was less than a year old when we mm-hmm. decided to start this, we didn't really have a whole lot of funds stored up. So, we did an, an initial Kickstarter campaign where we got about a about $3,000 to start. Um, And that just helped us with um, some equipment needs that we still needed, um, some time, so labor from additional people, because at that time it was only Mm. me, and so it was a lot harder to, to get shoots done. Um, and, and there we, you know, we quickly exhausted that and, and really over the last year and a half, um, it's just been, uh, you know, deliberate media funds, our client work that's been funding this. So it's Uh, not, it's not like the different, uh, food places that are featured in this are sponsors in any way or anything. No, um, not until right now at the very end mm-hmm. when we said, you know, we're doing this final push. There's a ton of costs here at the end. Um, and we put a call out for sponsors um, and Visit Indy and Indy Food Council um, both sponsored awesome. us a little bit. So that mm-hmm. was fantastic. Um, and it gave us a little bit of extra, you know, room to get some of those things. Because, you know, before we were just doing things that were our own labor. So yeah. it didn't really cost us anything but time. <clears throat> Whereas now, you know, we had to send it off to a sound editor or to a color correct to a graphics person, and all those individuals cost more money up sure, front. Sure, of course. So how can people see this? Yeah, so we're having a, um, a six-screening series this mm-hmm. summer over June and July. There's four in June and two in July. Um, and the, the premiere will be at Tyner Pond Farm on Saturday, June 11th. Um, at five o'clock and each screening is um, really unique because each one of them is followed by a community conversation so though obviously we cannot include everything that's happening in the food scene in Mm -hmm. our documentary because it would be like a week-long documentary so we we had to figure out a way to continue the discussion and include businesses and organizations that we were not able to include i see um so you know we featured these certain ones in the film but from there we're partnering with um other organizations and businesses on the ground to host host these screenings and then afterwards have panelists that are comprised of people doing similar work or other types of things that you know support other areas of the food movement mm-hmm. and we're going to have a discussion about it and each screening will then have a different theme yeah each screening is a different theme um yeah. and in uh for five of them, they're very much, uh, you know, this one's about access, this one's about nutrition, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, the only one that's different is our one up in Hamilton County, um, because that's where our production company is. We're doing um, that discussion about what's happening in Hamilton County. Sure, that makes sense. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, any plans for uh, larger distribution or uh, what what happens next? Yes. Well, I mean, you've been working on this a long time. I know you want to get it out there. Yeah, for sure. Well, and then the biggest thing is, you know, we want the discussion to be here and we want mm-hmm. people here to learn about it and engage in it but we also want to show other people i mean just like my friend that i mentioned who didn't realize indy was so progressive well that's what we want to do is spread the word about it so we actually on friday applied to our first seven film festivals and we're going to continue doing them in kind of batches um for the rest of the year and hopefully you know we're doing some food themed ones and then Mm -hmm. some ones around the midwest and we're just hoping to um get as as many eyes on it as possible well you have to keep us updated on that i will and let us know (laughs) Excellent. Well, looking forward to uh, uh, seeing the entire uh, documentary, Food First. Uh, Hannah, thanks so much for coming in Art of the Matter. It's uh, great to have you here, and congratulations on an amazing film. Oh, thank you so much. Travis Nicola with filmmaker Hannah Myers Lindgren of Deliberate Media. The first Food for Thought screening of the documentary Food First, followed by a community discussion, takes place at Tyner Pond Farm in Greenfield on June 11th, starting at 5 p.m. You can get the full schedule and preview the film at Deliberate media llc.com slash food first once again deliberate media 
LLC.com slash food hyphen first. You're listening to The Art of the Matter on WFYI 90.1 FM Public Radio. Jonathan Wright figured out his career path at a very early age, and he's never looked back. Sharon Gamble invited the Indianapolis Museum of Art's new Ruth Lilly, Deputy Director for Horticulture and Natural Resources, to tell us about his previous gigs at Chanticleer and Longwood Gardens, why he was attracted to his new job, and the tipping points between gardener and horticulturalist. So I have a sense of how the road led from Pennsylvania to Indiana, but how did the road lead you to horticulture? Great question. Uh, I was sort of one of those geeks from childhood who always was out playing with plants and dissecting flowers, and uh, it's just always been a complete passion of mine. Was there somebody, a parent or a sibling or a cousin or somebody who um, encouraged that? Well, my grandfather uh, was a serious gardener, and I think you know, from very young childhood, four or five, I remember him very passionately out in the garden, um, tending the flowers that my grandmother loved. You know, she loved many carnations, and um, and so she was she was not well with cancer, and he um, he used to take the care of the garden to make her happy. Aww. I think, and that I think that made a strong impression on me, and um, I just sort of gardened from then on, as well as modeling that gardening's not just about uh, botany; it's not just about the plants; it's about community. Oh, absolutely, and and the, the 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 true power that plants and the beauty that they bring to our lives can have on people's lives. It's where, really important to me. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up uh, in outside of Philadelphia, and very fortunately, when I was around thirteen, my family moved uh, right behind Longwood Gardens. Which oh is a, my gosh! Um, it was a very fortunate event to happen in my life because uh, right right around that time, I learned that they had this incredible professional gardening program where um, they have eight to ten students that they choose every year. And you get to live in the garden at Longwood and do nothing but study and actually do hands-on gardening for two years with their staff. And for people who haven't been to Longwood, describe it. Oh, Longwood is a former state of industrialist uh, and DuPont family magnate, Pierre DuPont. And when he passed away, he left his 1,000-acre uh, garden and home and five-acre conservatory complex to be a place to delight and enjoy and educate the public. Man, amazing. And, uh, very much like some other generous families that we have here in Indy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just about any place you go, you'll find uh, people who say, well, uh, there, there'll be a time when I can't enjoy this anymore, so let's figure out what to do with it. So was there anything that ever tugged on your sleeve and said, no, think about doing this for a living instead? Not really. I've always it's I've been pretty passionate about plants and horticulture my whole life. I didn't always know it would be public horticulture. I think early on I thought I would just design gardens and maybe be a landscaper or a garden designer. Um, but once I got to Longwood and I realized that the power that public horticulture had on people's lives, I, that there was no going back. So, where does the line between gardening? Uh, slip over into horticulture. What's the, define those terms for us. Oh, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, I think horticulture is really the formal, um, the formal study of plants and and using them and growing them. Um, I think any home gardener is practicing horticulture. There's varying degrees. In many ways, it's probably um, they're interchangeable. The garden where I I have come from. 
um, we all, all of our titles were horticulturist. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some other public gardens, the same role would be titled curator. Like in the New York Botanical Garden, it might be a curator of woody plants or curator of herbaceous plants. Mm-hmm. So even within the field, there's some there's some wiggle room in how the terms are used. But I say horticulturist and gardener, um, I use them almost interchangeably because I, I, to me, they're both um, a value, uh, position of high value and sort of deserve respect. Sure. Uh, we should talk about uh, not only did you have the chance to study at Longwood, but you were at Chanticleer for a, a dozen years, right? I was. And, and uh, tell and, us about Chanticleer. Uh, Chanticleer is a really very special place. Obviously, having spent over 12 years of my life there, it's very close to my heart. It's a um, a public garden that was also a private home. Uh, the Rosen Garden family built a summer home about 12 miles west of Philadelphia in 1912, um, same year that Lily House was built, which is very interesting. And uh, they originally intended it just to be their summer home and to entertain and uh, they realized very quickly by the 20s that um, life was pretty good out in the country. And uh, so they moved out there full time and they raised two children there. And they grew. They added on to their original property and built a house um, next door on property that they acquired for their daughter as a wedding gift and built uh, acquired the neighboring property with a house for their son and created a lovely family compound. And it was actually their son, uh, Adolf Rosengarten Jr., who was a real passionate gardener. And he's the one who, uh, he and his um, his late wife, they've both uh, since passed, are the ones who really established the, the foundation and the public garden that exists today. And it exists with one mission, which is to be a beautiful garden and to inspire and educate people. So you've, you really had um, some grounding in two very different kinds of gardens that both started as, as private homes of people with quite um, – a lot of means to, to make mm-hmm. them pretty spectacular. But but whereas Longwood is a fairly formal garden with a fairly formal house, Chanticleer is more, it, it feels like the country house. It feels like the place you go to visit. It's much more casual and more um, r- rambling. I think rambling is a good way to put it. It's sort of a strolling garden. It's mm-hmm. meant to be um, their, their sort of mission um, is to be a pleasure garden. You know, the idea is that um, while they do educate and inspire people, um, the main what comes first is beauty and and having a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And so, the staff there is incredibly talented, and the board is in, um, very generous. So they pass down sort of very open ended, um, sort of an open charge to the director there, which is. Make this a beautiful place for people to come and enjoy. Mm. Make this an incredible garden, and they don't—they um, don't put a lot of rules and restrictions on that, on how that happens. So, and the director then passes that autonomy down to the horticulturists. So, uh, six full-time horticulturists there, and what they do is they each are in charge of a specific part of the garden, whether it's one of the historic homes, one of which has actually been returned to a garden. So mm. the home was actually turned into a ruin. They took a rather grand house that was in the center of the property, and um, it did not have any um, significant historical value. It was a very nice home, but it really was another home that would have needed expensive maintenance and didn't serve much of a purpose, considering there were two other grand houses on the property. And since the mission was to be a beautiful garden, the board was in full support of taking the house down and then building up from the foundation sort of the remnants, the ruin, the fantasized um, sort of ruin of a of a home that had, you know, everyone thinks that maybe it burned down, 
and it's this fantasy and you wander in and out of rooms and look through windows and doors and it just becomes this magical experience that um, is very rare and to have a board that says the experience is the most important thing and we need to keep this garden alive and vibrant and bring it forward so that it is dynamic and changes. Sure. Now you've, you've uh, in, in addition to Longwood and Chante- Chanticleer, um, you've certainly experienced and studied at and been through programs at a lot of spectacular gardens. What was your first impression of the gardens, all of the gardens at the IMA, from, from 100 acres to uh, the orchard to, did you have an, uh, an initial impression? I was completely blown away with um, just the absolute beauty and the elegance of the property. Um, Old Fields, Lily House and Gardens is extraordinarily beautiful, and the team and my predecessor did have done an amazing job, and I'd heard through the years. I had an idea what to expect, but it so far exceeded my expectations. The grounds are so beautiful. And I think what blew me away the most, what I was so inspired by, was the ability of... um, for the IMA to present many different um, garden experiences. So as you enter, there's the beautiful, um, the Sutphin Mall with um, the Lichtensteins and the Love Sculpture and this beautiful sort of very contemporary garden space that's free and open to the public as part of our entry gardens. And then the buildings around the museum themselves are very contemporary and allows you to do sort of more avant-garde, unusual things that are maybe happening are inspired by what's going on around the world and design. Whereas you step across the bridge, the Woodstock Bridge, and into the Wood Formal Garden and the Dickinson Four Seasons Garden and Oldfield's property itself, and you have this incredible sense of space, of place, of this era that's time gone by. Um, and then you look across the canal at 100 acres, and it's sort of wild and untamed in many ways. Of course, our team is working very, very hard to <laughs> keep the balance of nature there and, and um, really do everything we can to make that property um, healthier environmentally and sure. sustainable and also be a place for people to engage with nature that's a little bit wilder and a little less intentionally designed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like some insight into your vocabulary. As a gardener slash horticulturalist, um, when you approach a new garden for the first time, do you do you have some some doors you look through or some filters you look through and you say, well, this is clearly a formal garden or, or the intent of this garden is? Or tell us about your measuring stick as you're encountering a new, uh, a new landscaped or planted space. So I think the first thing that I, I look at, and I think this is um, any gardener does this on in any garden they go to. Um, if you're a a hobby gardener and you go to a friend's garden, the way you look at their garden is just, at least for me, I think, um, see what makes that place unique and makes it special and makes it not what you see everywhere else. And Mm -hmm. so um, looking at what's intrinsically um, sort of essentially the heart of the garden. And what I love, and bringing it back to um, the gardens at the IMA, is that we have this incredible history of these spaces that have beautiful bones and we don't have incredible records. Um, There's not a lot of detail about every single one of those spaces. So, for instance, the um, our the Ravine Garden um, that's been restored. Um, that garden, we actually have drawings of where every plant was, and that's that that's makes unusual. it sort of very unusual because we can have this time capsule of a 1920s, 30s era um, 
you know, Asian-inspired ravine garden with the beautiful, the bridge that's very sort of the most uh, visual sort of clue to the Asian inspiration. Mm -hmm. But that's very special that you have that. But then you go to other areas, for instance, the, um, the, uh, the Dickinson Four Season Garden, which they've done a beautiful job to restore the fountain and the, the hedging and really restore the space. But we don't have records of what those plantings were. So to me, what's exciting is to say we have this history that we can honor and respect, and we've clearly put a lot of energy and people have put time and and put effort into restoring it, which is this beautiful framework. Now the job is how can we engage this space more? How do we plant it to make it really vibrant and come alive so that when you walk into that space, you're blown away? That's, that to me, that that's what's really exciting is – how do you balance the bones and the history and the heart and bring it forward in ways that are exciting to people? As well as um, to capture its history so that 50 years from now, nobody is saying, uh, I wish we had a better record of what, what they were thinking. Definitely. And we were, um, we were just talking, we have uh, uh, an intern that's going to join our photography department this season to focus specifically on the gardens. Oh, uh, which is unbelievable because for for record keeping and also just to help the gardeners, you know, from year to year, that's an incredible tool to to know how things performed and what you know what lessons were learned. So mm -hmm. that you know, gardening is a, a friend always puts it as gardening is the slowest of the performing arts, <laughs> and so it's really great to be able to sort of look at your movement and make adjustments for from season to season. Now, you're really passionate about growing things. Is that something that when you have time at home, you, you continue? Or do you have to do something completely different? No, it's, it's my passion. Um, it's, it sort of overtakes every, <laughs> every waking, every daylight hour of my life generally. Um, and within my new role, I'm, let's face it, I'm not the one who's doing all of the hands-on gardening anymore. Sure. I, mean, I have an incredibly talented team that has been at the IMA for some of our staff have been there 26 years, and they're unbelievably talented and, and passionate and fortunate to work with. I'm so fortunate to work with them because my role is to sort of help with master planning and strategic strategy and how do we get where we want to go. So on weekends, when I don't have to be in the meetings and, and sort of looking at the big picture, I can put my head down and get my hands dirty. I love that. Favorite plant? Uh, favorite plant? Hmm, very good question. I'm, I'm a sucker for agave which are succulents, sort of the woody lilies. Um, but if you ask me any day of the year, it's going to be something different. Uh, but I, I do love cacti and succulents, and agave are, are, are big. And I, I do have to admit that I've spent all of last weekend planting up um, about 30 containers for the patio in our little rental house because I can justify spending the money if I can put it in the truck and take it with us to the house that we buy in, <laughs> hopefully in the fall. Um, and the second weekend we were here uh, in March, I went and found um, found a great supplier for compost and did multiple truckloads and filled up some empty raised beds that were fortunately behind the house by the garage. And we're, because I jumped the gun and I planted very, you know, in a novice way, I planted lettuce, like seven or eight different lettuces and spinach and arugula. Dinner at Jonathan's house. Absolutely. I hope you <laughs> like salad because we have a lot of it right now. Um, and we had that mild weather, so it, it all worked out. Sharon Gamble with Jonathan Wright, the Indianapolis Museum of Art's new Ruth Lilly, Deputy Director for Horticulture and Natural Resources. You can learn more about the many gardens and landscapes at the IMA at imamuseum.org. Woo! 
Oh no, wait, that's the F one card. <laughs> no, that was do, a bad. Do the uh, uh, do the um, Indy car for me. Chug, 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 chug. <laughs> that's what it runs out of gas. <laughs> oh, that's awful. I can't do a car noise. I don't know. I, I got a channel of Sharon. I'll, I see. Uh, okay. Well, just don't forget your sunscreen if you're going to Absolutely. that that little sporting event this weekend, the mm-hmm. 100th running celebration. What a great weekend to be in Indianapolis. Not just because of the Indy 500. We have some other things to celebrate on our calendar we call What, what Will We, we do? do? That's so not many, quite as fast as the race. <laughs> But tickets are going fast to see Josh Kaufman at the warehouse. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is cool because Josh is going to be singing back home in Indiana at the race, of course, which is a great choice. Uh, Josh, of course, won The Voice on NBC. Um, but he's uh, the warehouse is a really great space up in Carmel and bringing in lots of amazing musicians. In fact, I'm going to have an extended interview uh, with Heather from the warehouse later in June about their upcoming schedule. Uh, but I want to give you a heads up now because Josh Kaufman is performing June 25th at the warehouse and tickets are going fast. It's a very small venue, very intimate seating. Uh, so you want to check this out if you're a Josh Kaufman fan. Very cool. I'm looking forward to that interview because they've snagged some amazing artists oh, for that space. Good Absolutely. for them. For, in, for a venue that's not very old. Incredible. So. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm pretty excited Good about deal. that too. Hey, if you're hearing us Thursday night you still have a chance to go to the final friday closing celebration which is family friendly of undocu challenges you might remember our conversation a few weeks ago about the um um the effort to raise money to uh provide scholarships for undocumented Hoosiers and there's an art show that's been up all month and you can celebrate its closing this Friday that's May 27th from 6 to 9 at the Art Gallery at the Center for Interfaith Cooperation that's at 1100 West 42nd Street in Indianapolis so go check that out and support a great cause. Cool. Hey, uh, put this on your calendar for June 7th if you're a fan of magic. The Indie Magic Monthly, which uh, does a monthly show, that's why they call it that, at, down at uh, Theater on the Square on Mass Avenue. Their June 7th show is their annual Young Whippersnappers of Magic show. Young magicians <laughs> and lots of great, talented uh, young magicians are going to be performing that night. And the featured magician is Trig Watson, who has been, uh, he's been at Indie Fringe and has done lots of shows, but he's also been on Masters of Illusion and all other types of television shows about magic and has got a great national reputation. Really talented young kid, and he'll be uh, back his nickname home. is Trick? Trig. Oh, Trig. Trig. Trig, oh. yes. It I thought maybe like it was Trig. a stage name. Nope, yep, Trig. T-R-I-G-G Watson. Absolutely incredible young man. Uh, great magician. And so he'll be performing with a lot of other young whippersnappers on June 7th. A theater on the square. That is an adorable name for that. We can <laughs> revive that phrase. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, if you have friends in town, family who are like, hey, all the hotels are full. Can I crash on your couch? Um, you want to get them out of the house on a day besides um, the day of the Indy 500. I have a couple of things coming up here on the calendar you can take them to. One is the exhibit that's on view now at the Museum of Miniature Houses, which is a bicentennial exhibit that includes in different scales of miniature uh, everything from a replica of Levi Coffin's house in Fountain City that was, uh, as you may probably remember, was a main station on the Underground Railroad, to a replica of Major Taylor's bicycle, to um, little tiny-scale Amish buggies, a quilt shop, a river paddle boat, tiny versions of tools used in the 1800s and early 1900s, and, of course, models of winners from the Indy 500, um, so all sorts of lovely Indiana Bicentennial exhibits at the Museum of Miniature Houses in Carmel, in the Carmel Arts District. Sharon, you know, speaking of automobiles and art, 
Jiffy Lube of Indiana is having a contest. Uh, they're putting out a call to artists to celebrate this collaboration between the Department of Public Works and Jiffy Lube. That's right, Jiffy Lube. And they are using the theme Every Part Matters for a mural project that's going to be taking place throughout Indianapolis. It's a very cool thing. And so they are looking for submissions right now from different artists. You can get all the guidelines and information if you just go online and Google Jiffy Lube of Indiana and Every Part Matters. And you'll find out how you can be an artist that's a part of this public project. Wow, I love that. Hey, um, something else to take your friends and relatives out to, or just take yourself out to it. It's uh, 200 Years of Indiana Art, a cultural legacy at the Indiana State Museum. That's up now, opened recently, runs uh, through October 2nd, so you have uh, a little bit of time. But um, there are um, works from long ago and contemporary works and just a wonderful opportunity to showcase the diversity of Indiana art uh, to the public. Indiana State Museum. Sounds good. Hey, the Wren Foundation, that's for Real Empowerment Now, is putting on the 1940s-era USO show to be held on Saturday, June 4th at the Fort Harrison State Park. And they're doing this with Jazz for the Health of It in collaboration with Indiana Arts Commission Art in the Parks. And it is going to be a fun show. Uh, One o'clock on Saturday, June 4th. It's a 1940s-era USO show. And it's featuring Clifford Ratliff's big band. Oh, that's fun. Yes. Um, uh, a decade later, The Merry Wives of Windsor, set in the 1950s mm. in a new production directed by Bill Simmons uh, at the Fringe Building. It is a collaboration uh, between Indie Shakes and Wisdom Tooth Theater Project. And it's just a madcap comedy with uh, mis- misdirected messages. And for reasons that will become clear to you when you go see the production, it's been reset in the United States in the 1950s. Just saying. <coughs> Very cool. Mm-hmm. Hey, last thing I've got, Sharon, what do uh, Culture Club and Lorena McKennett have in common? They're coming to Clues? <laughs> They're both coming to Clues. <laughs> Culture Club, July 15th, Lorena McKennett in November. Get your tickets now. They're going fast. Fantastic. And don't forget, you can always learn more about local arts events at IndieArts.org slash guide, the Arts Council of Indianapolis's Indie Arts Guide. Be safe out there this weekend, whether you're going to that uh, fast track on the west side or doing something else. And we'll be back next weekend with a calendar we call What What Do We we Do? You're listening to The Art of the Matter, a weekly show about the arts in Indianapolis and central Indiana. Your hosts are Sharon Gamble and Travis DiNicola. If your arts organization has an event or activity of which you think we should be aware, please contact us at least three weeks in advance. You can write us at The Art of the Matter, care of WFYI, 1630 North Meridian Street, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46202. Or you can email us at artofthematter at wfyi.org. You can also hear The Art of the Matter on wfyi.org. In 2015, Hinkle Fieldhouse received the Cook Cup for Outstanding Restoration from Indiana Landmarks, and as a result, storyteller Sally Perkins was commissioned to tell the story of Keeping Hinkle, Hinkle, for the If These Walls Could Tell series. Travis Nicola talked with Perkins and with Mark Zabote from Indiana Landmarks to learn more. Sally, Mark, welcome to Art of the Matter. Great to have you both here. Thank you. Great to be here. Hi, Travis. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Sally, we're going to talk about storytelling at Hinkle in just a minute, which I'm very excited about. Uh, before we do, um, Mark, give me a little bit of background on what the Indiana Landmarks Cook Cup is uh, so that we know how Hinkle was selected and how this all connects to storytelling. Well, the Cook Cup is our 
annual award, our top award. It's for statewide preservation, uh, preservation that's significant, um, that meets the highest standards in uh, method, materials, and design of preservation. It can be given to an individual, a corporation, a not-for-profit organization, or, or a government entity. Mm-hmm. And it, there is a panel that judges the award, and they they base it on the importance of the structure, the condition of the structure at the outset, the magnitude and quality of the restoration, and most of all, the impact of the restored building on the community. And so, Hinkle's a pretty important building, and it went through a major restoration. Very much so, very much so. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, it went through, uh, it was over $36 million in restoration. Wow, okay. Um, the leading the leading uh, design team was Racial Architects, mm-hmm. and uh, it it fit all of the standards. It fit all fit all the standards for the award, and we were more than happy to 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 give that award to them. So so Hinkle gets selected for the Cook Cup, and then how yes. does that tie into the If These Walls Could Tell series? What exactly is that? Well, about six six or seven years ago, uh, storytelling arts. And Indiana Landmarks uh, got together and talked about, well, why don't we collaborate on these award winners? Why don't mm-hmm. we tell the story of the building, the story of, of, of the history of the building, the story of the people that, you know, lived and breathed and made the building what it was, the story of the, of the preservation process, and not only tell the story, but tell it in the actual building. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, again, make the walls come alive. So... Um, that's a We're, great element of this. Yes, yes, yes. We always we always tell the story in the actual building. This will be our sixth. Um, so uh, we usually tell the story in Indiana Landmarks too. But since it's uh, the the winner this year is here in Indianapolis, we decided just to do it right in Hinkle. Do it all at Hinkle, in the middle of the basketball court. And Sally, that's where you come in, right? It is, yeah. So tell me about your involvement in this. Have you been a part of the uh, the series before, or is this your first one? No, I have, actually. In fact, I had the great honor of the first time that they did this commission and gave mm-hmm. the award. The award actually went to what is now Indiana Landmarks headquarters, yeah. which used to be Central Avenue United Methodist Church. And so I had the incredible honor of telling, uh, researching, interviewing, crafting, shaping the, the story for that space, which uh, was just such an honor. I mean, oh, that's it was a great space, too. Beautiful, yeah. But uh, Hinkle has a lot of stories, too. I mean, and And not... Just the obvious ones. I mean, obvi- I mean, yes, of course. I and mean, we we think about you know all the great basketball championships that have taken place there, and and of course uh, the home of Butler. But there's so much more to Hinkle than just that. I mean, so, that would be enough. But yes, so true. And uh, in fact, when the task was offered to me, it was a little daunting insofar as there are only, you know, millions of people who have come <laughs> in and out of that space over the years. And in, and indeed, you're absolutely right that there's the there are the stories that, that people are familiar with and need to be mm-hmm. part of what I'm telling. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, I, I didn't want those to overpower other stories that I've heard in the process of interviewing 
so many people in the last uh, 15, uh, 10 to 12 months, really. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, getting that combination, that balance of telling the, the untold stories as well as the stories that are just an absolutely essential part of the history. No, am I correct that there used to be roller skating there? There did used to be roller skating. <laughs> uh, yes, and there there have been ice hockey shows in the mm-hmm. space. There have been bicycle relays in the space. There have been track and field events. There have been piano recitals. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it goes on and on. And so many of those really unusual things, well, that we would consider unusual today because today yeah. it's used just pretty much as a basketball and volleyball space. Sure. Um, you know, those things happened long ago. And in fact, not many of those folks are living anymore who mm-hmm. who were doing those kinds of different activities. Uh, so I wasn't able to interview those kind of folks. But, um, you know, pulling those, weaving those elements into the story has certainly been important so that we understand what the space has meant to Indianapolis, to Indiana for the 88 years that it's been around. So in creating your story, it sounds like a lot of your process is talking and interviewing other people about their stories. Yes, I consider it to be sort of a three-phase process that mm-hmm. I've gone through. So the first phase is um, what the research phase. And it starts with just a lot of reading, just a lot of background reading, so that I have some sense of what the chronology is of the events and the building and sure. that sort of thing. And then once I felt like I had a pretty good baseline to work from, then I started interviewing as many folks as I possibly could. And the interviews ranged from people who were there and knew Tony Hinkle and worked with Tony Hinkle to people who played there quite recently. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and trying to certainly get the voices of not just basketball players, but to get the voices of uh, volleyball players, of women who have been in that space, of people who have worked down in the equipment cage and people who have been reporters and all sorts of things. So trying to get all kinds of different voices Mm -hmm. of people who have experienced different aspects of the space. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, how many people have found employment there? I mean, at the box office, concessions, what Mm -hmm. have you, you know, janitorial, you know, all, all those things as well. Yes. I mean, it is a big space, and it takes a lot of people to maintain it, I'm sure. It does. It does. So tell me a bit about the format of this. Uh, how is this going to take place? You, Mark said uh, it's it's actually going to be on the basketball court, right? The yes. Storytelling? And we're actually opening the building earlier at 6 mm-hmm. o'clock uh, so that people can take self-guided tours okay. of the facility prior to, to starting the story. That's very cool. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, certainly a lot of people have been in the space maybe for specific events, but maybe haven't walked around there thinking of it from a historical perspective and check out the old and the new and yes. such. So people can come in at 6, and then the event actually starts at 7.30, and then it'll be on on the floor, and uh, and you'll be telling your story. I will be, yeah. Yeah, the story is about uh, an hour in length, mm-hmm. and so in one hour there is an attempt to weave all of this together into a single narrative. So that has taken a bit of ingenuity on my part to figure out what the single narrative is to thread these different stories. And, of course, you know, the sad part is that so many of the stories I've heard and read in the last year have had to be cut out because I only have an hour. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, 
Anyway, I'm thrilled to be able to do it on the court, in that space, to be able to direct our attention to various locations where uh, our primary character is going to be wandering through in the arena and the memories that will come out from the different locations in the arena. And those memories will come through the voices of the different people that I have interviewed and talked with. Sometimes their voices are there directly. Sometimes it's I had an interview with someone and they gave me ideas or mm-hmm. motifs or or perspectives that uh, come out in the story. What's something that you wanted to include that maybe you couldn't because of time? Oh, gosh, so many things. Um, there was a, a wonderful interview that I did with a woman who actually her daughter was a soccer player. She was the daughter of the assistant to Tony Hinkle. So okay. Tony Hinkle's assistant basketball coach, Bob Dietz, um, his daughter, um, Karen, her her daughter then went to Butler as well mm-hmm. and played soccer but died after her freshman year mm-hmm. in a tragic auto accident. And the story that she told me about their grief and how Butler and the folks in the field house came to their care during their period of grief Uh, was just profound to me. And in fact, one of the things that I'll never forget that she told me was that during the either 2010 or 2011, of course, when Butler went to the NCAA championship games, she uh, attended one of the games that was in somewhere out west. And she was about six or seven years after her daughter died. And when she was at that game and they won that game, the thrill of being there and the people who she was surrounded with, these people who just care so much through the Butler program, she said, for the first time, I felt true joy after my daughter died. Mm-hmm. I never knew that I would be able to feel that again. That was a, an incredibly beautiful moment. It didn't occur in the field house. And and I yeah, just, sure. you know, there just was, it was one of those stories that I just couldn't that. work its way yeah. in. But it was a profound representation of the kind of values that are upheld in Hinklefield House. Mark, let me ask you this. Why is it important for historic landmarks, which is I mean, really in the business of, of saving physical buildings, why is it important for, for, for historic landmarks to give voice to these stories? Well, so that people understand it's, it's more than just the building, just the brick, bricks mm-hmm. and mortars. There's more to it. Um, there, there, there's a whole history. There's people's lives. Um, there's, there's, there's significance other than the bricks and mortar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it sounds like so many stories. I'm, I'm sure people continue to come up to you and want to share them with you, Sally. Absolutely. I did a, a run through the other night. I had a little, um, a little homegrown audience that came. Probably about twenty, twenty-five people. And I, I had a hard time getting out of the space because everybody <laughs> came up with their own, you know, their own Hinkle Fieldhouse, their own stories of remembering being high school students mm-hmm. and coming to all those sectionals or whatever it was. It's hard not to. I've got a it story is. I want to share with you, you know, right now. <laughs> you know. Tell me. But yeah, yeah. Well, maybe off the air, but uh, but it, uh, absolutely. What a, what a great project and a great thing and a wonderful way to uh, to give voice to the buildings. And to the stories there, uh, sounds like a great project, and I uh, wish you both the best of luck with it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Travis. Travis Nicola with storyteller Sally Perkins and Indiana Landmarks' Mark Sabodi. 
You can hear the story of Hinkle Fieldhouse keeping Hinkle Hinkle on June 4th at 7.30 at, surprise, Hinkle Fieldhouse. Doors open at 6 p.m. for those who want to take a self-directed historical tour of Hinkle Fieldhouse. Tickets are $15 and are available at the Hinkle box office. More information is available at storytellingarts.org. Again, storytellingarts.org. Thanks for joining us today. The music for today's show is courtesy of the Baselli Walrab Jazz Orchestra from their Heart and Soul album available through Owl Studios at owlstudios.com. Please listen to The Art of the Matter next week, Thursday at 8 p.m. and Saturday at 7 a.m. I'll preview an exhibit of paintings that were all created in Indiana State Parks. I'll talk with actor Ron Keaton, who portrays Winston Churchill in a one-man show coming to Indy. And I'll talk with artist Gautam Rao about the many projects he's taken on this summer. And we'll have that arts calendar we call... What will we do? So please listen next weekend to The Art of the Matter here on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. You've been listening to The Art of the Matter, a weekly show about the arts in central Indiana and Indianapolis. Your hosts are Sharon Gamble and Travis DiNicola. Today's show was edited by Melissa Davis and produced by Travis DiNicola. The Art of the Matter, made possible by the ongoing support of listeners like you.